1: In the last two weeks, we've discussed mindfulness of the Dhamma with regard to the first two hindrances, that is, desire and aversion. But tonight I'd like to examine the third of the hindrances. And it's one that at different times can be very strong in our practice and in our lives. And these are the mental states the mental factors of sloth and torpor. Now, these two factors, sloth and torpor, are actually distinct uh, mental qualities, but they're closely related, and they always arise in conjunction with one another. So we'll look just very briefly at the distinction between the two, but mostly we'll be talking talking about them as a pair. So this is from the Satipatthana Sutta. This is the instruction about working with these states. If sloth and torpor is present, one knows there is sloth and torpor present in me. If they are not present, one knows there is no sloth and torpor present in me. One knows how unarisen sloth and torpor can arise, how if it has arisen, it can be removed, and how a future arising of sloth and torpor can be prevented. Well, this is the Buddha's instruction. Now, how to apply that. Sloth is that mental factor which is a sluggishness of consciousness, the sluggishness of mind. It dispels energy. There's a lack of a driving power moving forward. It's a kind of sinking mind. So it's interesting to me how sometimes different animals represent mind states. Of course, there is the, the animal of the sloth, which I'll talk about later. But another animal which captures this quality of sluggishness of mind is a slug. You know, and you know how it just kind of creeps along. It's a good representation. Torpor is that quality of mind which is a weakened state of the mental factors. So here the distinction is between consciousness, sluggishness of consciousness, and sluggishness or enfeeblement of mental factors. When torpor is present, it's like the different mental factors get very unwieldy. They're not pliable. They're not agile. The example given is just like a heavy blanket smothering all the different factors of mind. So we experience that in a very familiar way as kind of a drooping or a sinking or a nodding. So sloth has to do with sluggishness of consciousness. Torpor has to do with sluggishness of mental factors. The mind when it's conditioned by these states, it's described as inert as a bat hanging on a tree or as molasses cleaving to a stick or as butter too hard and congealed for spreading. You know, so you get this image of just hardness and, and congealed quality. So the first step, in the Buddha's instructions, is to know when these states are present in us and when they are not present in us. And generally, this isn't so difficult to do. And generally, if we're nodding, by the time we're nodding, we know it. But sometimes we can miss the arising, the first arisings of it. You know, just as sloth and torpor begins to creep into our minds we may miss it or we may be in a kind of denial that it's there one time i was doing an interview and this is really the only time in all these years of uh, teaching but it stands out in my mind i was sitting doing an interview somebody had come in and i was just nodding off during the interview. <laughs> and I just kept and this poor yogi, I said, uh, Joseph, are you, are you sleepy? Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> so that's denial. <laughs> the question really for us is when the sleepiness or the sloth and torpor begins to come into the mind of how quickly we can recognize it how quickly to become aware yes these states are present in me now sloth and torpor the sleepiness the dullness of course all these these are common quite common at the beginning of a retreat you know when people come in from the busyness and activity of their lives and then come into the silence of a place like this where there are very few distractions Mm -hmm. very often the first few days the mind is really uh, very much influenced by sloth and torpor because in our lives we're going on the energy of stimulation mostly you know there's so much stimulation of all the senses and that's that's the energy we move on here that's been removed and so to a large extent and so we in a certain way, us suffering withdrawal symptoms. You know, so we're nodding off, there's dullness. One of the things you may have noticed in your time here, it's like when we first come, and sloth and torpor are stronger in us, there's the feeling maybe of not really getting alert until sometime later in the day. You know, all the the morning hours, like the mind's still asleep. And then maybe by four in the afternoon, it has an hour or two of alertness. And then by seven or eight at night, again, ready to fall asleep. And most of you probably don't go to sleep at eight o'clock, you know, at home in your lives. But here with the lack of stimulation, uh, the sloth and torpor come back. But what happens... As we connect with that deeper energy source within us, as we work through those first days, you know, stimulation, withdrawal, and we begin to connect with Dharma energy, the energy of this mind-body system, I think fairly common experience is that we begin to feel alert earlier in the morning, you know, and maybe stay alert later at night So that's the sloth and torpor that comes in the beginning of a retreat. But as you know, these states are not limited to that time. After we've settled in, after you've been here for a while, you have connected somewhat with the energy flow of this system. And if you're, you're running on that Dharma energy, still we have the experience at different times when the sloth and torpor, the dullness, the sleepiness, hits us. And it may come randomly. You may notice that it comes at particular times in the day. You know, maybe particular activities. There's a more subtle aspect of sloth and torpor. More subtle than these bouts of dullness that arise, either at the beginning of the retreat or randomly afterwards. And this more subtle kind of sloth and torpor is harder to recognize. Often it's influencing us and we don't even know that it's present. The, this deeper manifestation is the pattern in the mind, the tendency in the mind to withdraw from difficulties. It's the habit of mind that retreats from challenges, rather than engaging with the difficulty, rather than moving forward and engaging with the challenge. So in that sense, it's said to be like, this is not said in the suttas, but it's said to be like reverse gear of a car. You know, that's just moving backwards. It's not moving forward. When this manifestation of sloth and torpor is pe- present, this retreating from difficulty mode, not wanting to deal with them, it strengthens the tendency, it strengthens the patterns of laziness, of inactivity, of lethargy, complacency. You know, when this kind of sloth and torpor is present, there's no energy to do anything. There's no energy to accomplish something. There's not much vigor in our lives. At these times, sloth and torpor, which might not even be manifesting as sleepiness. It's just that uh, pulling back quality. At those times, these factors work to prevent us from drawing on the energy that we actually have. Well, it's not that the energy isn't there, but when sloth and torpor are present, we don't have any interest in accessing it. Sometimes this complacency of mind, this pulling back, this withdrawal, happens on very obvious levels. Sometimes it's happening on quite subtle levels in our practice. So one example of this could be at those times when everything is really going very well. Everything is flowing along effortlessly. you know, And we feel quite good about that. Mm-hmm. But because at that time no obvious effort is required we can be lulled into a kind of cruise control. We were just going along, we're being carried along, things seem to be going well. And that very lulling is a kind of sloth and topper. You know, it's a kind of lethargy in a very subtle way that actually keeps us from opening further. We're coasting in our practice, even when it's in a relatively good state like that. We're coasting rather than abiding in a very alert and present vibrancy of mind. There's a difference. Once sloth and torpor takes over, once it really comes into the mind and is there for a while, In whatever form, whether the the obvious form of the sleepiness and dullness and nodding or the subtle form of coasting, the tendency of sloth and torpor is to hold on tight, not to let go. The example (laughs) here, going back to uh, our animal imagery of the three-toed sloth, I read in this natural history book, you know, describing the animal, how it can hold on to the branch of a tree. You know, it just hangs there and you could fire a gun next to its head and it wouldn't turn its head. You know, it's so slothful. So that's what it's like. That's what these factors are like in the mind. It's very cozy and very comfortable. You know, it's the mind that in the morning loves the snooze button on the alarm clock. You know, instead of, oh, you know, the alarm goes off, we're awake, we're alert, we're ready for the day, engaging. Uh, The alarm goes, oh, just the snooze button, another few minutes, just let me stay in this really warm, comfortable state. Know that when that happens, see if you can be mindful, oh, sloth and torpor (laughs) manifesting its nature. These qualities of mind also don't care very much for energetic people. Mm-hmm. One time I was on a retreat in Australia with uh, Saito, and across the hall from me was um, a very energetic yogi. You know, I was working pretty hard, I thought, but I'd go to sleep, he'd still be up you know and i'd get up, i'd get up in the morning he'd already be awake and practicing so of course i had endless self-judgment about myself and my practice and but then it started to be projected onto him you know all my i just projected all my self-judgment on him and started seeing all his faults you know and how oh he was just pretending to be this good yogi and you know why was he showing off and but then finally, in, in a moment of clarity, I saw all of that was, was quite impersonal. And it was just the voice, the voices, really of sloth and torpor in my mind in response to energy. You know, sloth and torpor doesn't like energy. And as soon as I saw it in that impersonal way, and said, so this is not I, this is not mine, this is not myself, the whole situation became... Just a lot lighter, you know, and humorous and also inspiring. You know, sort of then I could connect more with the greater energy in myself. When sloth and torpor, this heaviness of mind, this inertia of mind, this withdrawing from challenges, when the mind is contracted under the influence of these factors and they're impersonal factors. They don't belong to anybody, they're just functioning in their own way. But when these factors are strong, there's not much joy, there's not much delight in our lives. There's not much delight or pleasure in our practice because we're always holding ourselves back or we're always pulling back. So the first step Is to simply recognize in the various ways that I've described or you know from your experience. The first steps are to recognize is sloth and torpor present? Is it not present? There's something very valuable about that simple recognition because when we become familiar, with the mind influenced by this dullness and we learn to recognize the mind free from that dullness, we are really learning something about ourselves. We're learning something about our minds when we see the difference between these two states very clearly. After we recognize the simple presence or absence, the next step that the Buddha talked about in the Satipatthana Sutta is to know the conditions for the arising of sloth and torpor. What are the causes that give birth to this state of mind in ourselves? The main condition for the arising of sloth and torpor, that's given in the text, and it's actually quite surprising, has to do with the wisdom factor. And the Buddha said, frequently giving unwise attention, giving unwise or careless attention to certain states, like discontent, like boredom, like laziness, like drowsiness caused by overeating, like depression or a sluggish state of mind, It's when these states arise and we give unwise attention to them, that is the cause, that unwise attention is the cause for sloth and torpor to uh, arise and spread. So this unwise attention could mean different things. It might mean as these different states that I mentioned arise, it might mean thinking, oh, there's no harm in that, there's no problem. You know, they're not gonna really be a hindrance to my practice. So if there's disinterest or boredom or whatever it is, we don't take care with them and see the possible uh, hindering hindering ability of them in our practice. Or there might be indulging kind of thoughts. You know, unwise reflection in terms of the indulging thoughts. I'm really tired. Well, this is so boring. Or thoughts of that nature would just reinforce the state and are an invitation for sloth and torpor to get stronger. Last week... In the last two weeks, we talked about how different thoughts can trigger emotions, like desire, like anger. You know, And so we explored a little bit the relationship of thought to emotion. Well, we don't usually think of sloth and torpor as an emotion. But in the larger Buddhist kind of understanding of all of these as being mind states, we can see that thoughts also condition the mind states of sloth and torpor. So we want to watch our minds, watch the kind of thinking patterns we have around them. When this unwise attention, it feeds them. Sometimes we are fooled into this unwise or careless attention. Because sloth and torpor can masquerade as compassion, particularly compassion for oneself. Now we might feel tired, we might feel bored, we might feel restless, and then sloth and torpor comes in, in the guise of compassion. If I work too hard, I'll probably get sick. Let me take care of myself. I'm pretty tired. Little nap will be just the thing. Be good to yourself. Yeah. And so it's these thoughts that you know they sound very caring and warm and compassionate and kind. But they may be sloth and torpor in disguise. There are times, of course, when we do need rest. You know, and so it's to be discerning of when that's the case, but very often it's not. I'll just give you one example. It's a story I've told often from my past yogi experience in India uh, when I was studying with Goenkaji. You know, and in his retreats, we would get up at four in the morning and have a two-hour sit before breakfast. So I... We'd get up, my alarm clock would go off. I'd get up, I'd jump right up because I wanted a place next to the wall in the meditation hall. You know, so I'd kind of get dressed quickly and rush into the hall and find my space against the wall. I'd start sitting. And then after 15 or 20 minutes, I'd start leaning back against the wall. And about 10 minutes after that, I'd be nodding. And this went on day after day after day after day. And then this voice started coming in Oh, Joseph, this is stupid. Why come here and just sleep during the sitting? You might as well sleep, get up, you know, just before breakfast, then you'll be rested and you'll be alert for the whole day. So that was the voice. But I didn't listen to it. I just kept going. It was mostly peer pressure, you know, but I just kept going and going and going. And amazingly, one day I went in there and my mind was totally alert. And if I hadn't gone through that period and just be willing to be with it and to sit through it, I wouldn't have gotten to that point. So be watchful. You know, know when it is that you actually need rest and know when it's sloth and tor- torpor disguised as kindliness. Another aspect of unwise attention is when we don't acknowledge very difficult emotions that might be present. Because sometimes things are arising and they may be quite traumatic, you know, something very strong. And the sloth and torpor can be a kind of defense against feeling it. We don't want to feel that painful emotion. And so then sloth and torpor comes in you know, as a way of not feeling it. But here, care is needed, particularly with powerful, repressed feelings and emotions. Because sometimes, sloth and torpor actually acts as a kind of regulator, you know, for how much and how fast it's all coming up. So there are times when it's actually Slightly protective in those cases, particularly of old trauma. But for most of us, and for the more usual run of the mill emotions, sloth and torpor, if it's coming in and functioning in that way, you know, to just cover it so we don't have to feel something unpleasant, the sloth and torpor itself can become a signal. Okay, is there something going on here that I don't want to feel? Don't make a big project of this, you know, and don't overanalyze. And it's not that you necessarily have to go digging for some emotion that uh, is there. Just hold it very lightly. Hold this possibility lightly. And in times when you're feeling the, the sleepiness or the dullness or the heaviness or the quality of retreating from things you know pulling back just in a very light way take a look is there some emotion there some state maybe some physical state uh, that you don't want to feel that you're avoiding so the third cause for the arising of sloth and torpor something that's not surprising, and that is overeating. Notice how you feel just after you take food and see the relationship of the sluggishness or heaviness of mind and body. See the relationship of it to the amount of food you take. The Buddha suggested stopping five mouthfuls before being full. Well, it's a challenge to know exactly when that point is. You know, five mouthfuls before. But just keeping it in mind keeps us more attuned as we're eating to the condition of our stomach rather than to the cravings and the urgings and the desires of our minds. You know, so it's a, it's a helpful place to be very attentive And here, you know, it's also a possibility of exploring the benefit and the value of the eight precepts of not taking food after the noon meal. On one self-retreat I was doing, this was before the Forest Refuge, I was just sitting in my house. I hadn't taken the eight precepts formally. I was just experimenting with food in the evening. And so sometimes I would just not take anything, and at other times I would take just a very little bit. Really, very, very, very moderate, hardly anything. And I was astounded at the difference, because I thought I'm hardly taking anything, and yet when I sat, I could feel the depressed energy level from it. So it's something just... To experiment with. Occasionally, sloth and torpor can come from not eating enough. In Burma, one time, and this was through a combination both of the diet, but also the you know very careful and mindful uh, eating. I wasn't taking enough food, and I lost about twenty pounds, twenty-five pounds when I was there. I was getting so weak that my body actually would topple over. I would just be sitting, and then I'd just fall over on my side. So I reported this to Sayadal. And it's the only time I ever heard him say, lighten up on your mindfulness. <laughs> you know, he, he actually told me, don't be so mindful <laughs> when you eat. You know, I, was, I was totally shocked. You know, just so that I would take enough food to sustain the health and energy of the body. So it's experimenting. It's just using all of these reference points to see what is the condition for the arising of sloth and torpor, and what can we do so that it doesn't arise. And the last of the conditions for sloth and torpor that I'll mention is just the imbalance between concentration and energy. You now, if there's too much concentration, not enough energy, we go into the sinking mind. It's a dream-like state. It's a reverie. It's very peaceful, you know. But but we're in a we're in a dream-like state, and so the sloth and torpor descend. These are some of the conditions for its arising. The Buddha then says, contemplate what to do when it does arise how how do we work with the state when it has already arisen how to heat up this congealed mind you know this cold butter molasses mind how do we heat it up with some interest and energy and alertness As with all of the hindrances, the first strategy and what's most emphasized in this sutta is to be mindful of it. Where we take the sleepiness or the dullness or this retreating mode, we take that state itself as the object of our attention. Now we try to note it. but to note it as soon as it arises see how quickly we can pick it up and then investigating what is this experience that i'm calling sleepiness so we not just don't dismiss it with a note or a word but we're bringing the power of our investigative mind to it what is the actual experience of this state i'm calling dullness or i'm calling heaviness And doing that rather than just sinking into it. Notice the feelings in the body. You know, you've recognized sloth and torpor is present. What does it feel like in the body specifically? What does it feel like in the mind? Notice it's contracting, it's withdrawing, it's sinking nature. Sometimes an obstacle to mindfulness of sloth and torpor is our attachment to clarity. Very often I've found myself that in the struggle, the wanting to be alert, the wanting to be clear, the wanting the mind to be bright, in the attachment to that, I'm so involved in that struggle that I'm not allowing myself To actually open to the state of sloth and torpor as it is, as it's manifesting. And I had a very powerful lesson in this. One year practicing with Deepama. Where during this was just a short one week retreat before the three month retreat. And she said, just sleep three hours a night and don't lie down during the day. You know, so that was a stretch for me. You know, three hours a night, don't lie down in the day, no naps. But then she said something else. She said, if you fall asleep when you're sitting, never mind. Okay, so that's what I did. And I was really tired, you know, often and many times during the day. And I would be nodding. But I didn't lie down. I slept only for three hours. But because of her last instruction, I stopped worrying about whether I fell asleep when I was sitting. She had given me permission. It was very interesting what happened because my mind relaxed in the experience of that state. And I began to explore a little bit. Okay, well, what is this sleepiness? I was not fighting with it, not struggling with it but just going into it with as much awareness as I had, and sometimes I would not off, but then I'd come back. And I found that there are actually some skillful states going on in the midst of it. Because generally when we're sleepy, the mind is calm. It's not, it's not agitated, it's not restless. So there's a calmness present. There's actually a kind of concentration present in sleepiness. You know, when there's not a lot of thought, if you're thinking a lot, you're probably not sleepy. You know, it's just that very, that mind getting very, very quiet and calm. And, and if there's not enough energy, it goes to sleep. But if we can stay just there with it, with interest and not with struggle, it's almost like we pull the threads of the calm and concentrate, concentration out of it. You know, and we focus on that. And it's possible to come to a very relaxed, open, balanced state. So again, it's just playing with it, being willing to be mindful of it. The great power of mindfulness here, just as with desire or anger, Seeing that it's possible to be with all of these states when they arise. And we can stay with them. We can keep noting them or noticing them. And just by being mindful of them, we see that at a certain point, they go away. And so mindfulness here is giving us and deepening our insight into the impermanence of the hindrances. And if we can stay with it, we see they come and go by themselves. We don't have to fulfill the desire, we don't have to act on the anger, we don't have to indulge the sleepiness in order for them to go. We just need to stay with it and we'll see their changing nature simply through the awareness of them. So mindfulness is the first and basic strategy for dealing with it. But if it, mindfulness is not strong enough. You know, it's not strong enough to stay even moderately aware. In times of sloth and torpor, The Buddha gave a whole list of other remedies. One is developing what he called... Clarity of cognition. And this means several things. It means developing mental clarity. Okay, how to do that when sloth and torpor is present. One way is to start adding more objects of meditation. So instead of just staying with the breath, which might be lulling you to sleep, add more objects, add touch points. You know, different touch points through the body. Three, four, five, five, ten. Twenty. You know, where you're really keeping the mind moving. From point to point. There's a technique which Tangpulu Sayadaw. One of the... He died quite a few years ago, but he was one of the great Burmese masters. He actually... He didn't lie down for 35 years. That was his remedy for sloth and (laughs) torpor but anyway so one of his talk about determination one of his techniques which i found very helpful at times especially as an antidote to the sinking mind he would suggest doing a round of hearing seeing sitting touching So we're really moving from sense to sense, hearing, seeing, internally or externally, sitting, the whole body, touch point. And it could be the same touch point each time, it could be different touch points, but moving the mind like that creates this clarity of cognition. It wakens us, makes us more alert. Another meaning of clarity of cognition is developing a radiant mind. Now, the word radiant comes up not infrequently in the suttas. And it's not always clear exactly what it means. But there's an interesting uh, understanding that comes from the Tibetan use of the word. Because in Tibetan, the word for radiant And knowing is the same. So really what it's referring to, radiance, doesn't necessarily mean you know, shining light, but rather it means the radiance or the the radiance, I could say of consciousness, the, the radiance of knowing, the ability to know. And so this is very powerful. This is, this is pointing to an essential nature of the mind, which is its ability to know what's ever arising. So in this context, we could say developing radiance of mind would mean focusing on the knowing aspect. So we're a sloth and torpor, you know, and it's kind of descending and We're sinking into it a bit. See if it's possible to turn the attention back onto the mind, which is knowing the sloth and topper. So it'd be kind of like having fog or mist being reflected in a mirror. The reflecting power of the mirror is not affected by the fog that radiance of the mirror, that reflecting power, the knowing power, so to speak, that's untouched by what's being reflected. The knowing mind is untouched by what is being known. So in this development, this clarity of cognition, developing a radiance of mind, we're actually looking at the knowing aspect, Looking at the mirror, so to speak, instead of mist, instead of the fog. Okay, if we do all this, the sloth and torpor is still strong. Buddha gave some other remedies. You see, this is not a new problem. You know, this this is this is a major influence over the centuries. Helpful to open one's eyes. You know, there's less tendency to to doze off and maybe to keep an upward gaze. And if that's not quite enough, I developed my own particular open eye technique. At one point, uh, this was the the first retreat I did with Sayadaw. We were just sleeping four hours a night then, and it was very intense. You know, it was a very kind of pressured retreat. He softened a bit over the years, at least here. But anyway, I was was just sluggish and nodding. So I just decided in one sitting, I was going to sit up very straight, open my eyes wide in a totally exaggerated way, just like a cartoon figure, you know, like toothpicks keeping the eyes propped open. So I was sitting like that. And it was very interesting what happened because I could feel... This cloud of sleepiness starting to come down, and I figured it descended, descended, descended. I could uh, everything in me wanted to close my eyes. Yes, you know, the, the force, the desire to close my eyes was so strong, but I didn't. I just, mm. <laughs> and so this, I could feel this wave of sleepiness come down, pass down through my face, into my body, and out. And then about 30 seconds later, another wave and the same strong urge to close my eyes. And it didn't out this happened three or four or five times this way. And then it was completely gone. And it was such an incredible lesson in understanding that sloth and torpor is not this monolithic, unchanging state. It's an energy wave, but it's so seductive. You know, that the wave comes and we just, ah, uh, you know, we just go right into it. So this was my, this was my open eye technique, which was very illuminating about the nature of the energetics of sloth and torpor and how we can really let it pass through as a wave. Okay. We're mindful. Develop clarity of cognition, hitting touch points, focusing on knowing. You know, opening the eyes, opening it in this way. If it's still strong, you know, you try all this, change postures, stand up. Well, I, I don't know that I mentioned uh, here, but did have there was one yoga teacher who said that he actually fell asleep in a headstand. So. <laughs> Changing posture doesn't always help, but it's it's somewhat harder to fall asleep standing. Walk outside. You know, splash water on your face. And a remedy the Buddha suggested, which never quite worked for me, but maybe it will for you, is pulling one's earlobes. And I don't know if there's some kind of pressure point there or acupuncture point, but it's a recommendation Okay, so these are some of the things we can do in working with sloth and torpor. There's another whole realm of remedy. It's a powerful remedy because it engages our thinking mind. And that is wise reflection. You know, one that engages our interest you know, and, and arouses a certain kind of ardency. So one of these, of course, is the reflection on the precious human birth, you know, and I think you're all familiar with that reflection of of just contemplating the rarity of the conditions that allow us to practice, you know, and it's, particularly such a privilege to be able to practice in this kind of environment. Uh, and so just reflecting on that, uh, Dilgo Kense Rinpoche, who was really one of the great masters of the last century, he said, Ask yourselves how many of the billions of inhabitants on this planet have any idea of how rare it is to have been born a human being? How many of those who understand the rarity of human birth ever think of using that chance to practice the Dharma? How many of those who think of practice actually do it? How many of those who start continue? Once you really see the unique opportunity that human life can bring, you will definitely direct all your energy into reaping its true worth by putting the Dharma into practice. And so it's this kind of Reminder to ourselves of the preciousness and rarity of the opportunity of practice. Sometimes that helps uh, awaken our mind, awaken our interest. Another reflection, which can be very powerful for us, not only on retreat, but also in our lives, is the reflection on impermanence and death. And here, very specifically related to this hindrance, because at the time of death, very likely, not necessarily, but not unlikely, that our minds may be in a weakened state. You know, our senses will probably be more enfeebled. Our mind may be in a duller state due to the illness or the dying process. So how will we want to be at that time? You know, at this shutting down of the body at the time of our death, what is our aspiration? It's very easy to say abstractly that, yes, I want to die consciously. I really want to be there for the dying process. I want to die with awareness. But how do we train for that? Each time sloth and torpor arises, which may be a state not dissimilar to how we feel at the time of our death, how are we relating to it? Do we take it as practice for dying? Can I be alert even in times of low energy? Can I stay mindful? Or do we just sink into it? Do we just indulge it? So this is the attitude of seeing difficulties and seeing challenges as something to meet, as something to engage with, rather than seeing the difficulties or challenges as something to pull back from or something to avoid. The last of the remedies for sloth and torpor that are mentioned are good friends and profitable talk. So here we're in a whole environment of good friends. You know, we're among fellow practitioners and we can inspire each other. You know, when we're feeling sluggish or tired or dull and we just want to retreat, and if we're not feeling too aversive at the time, we can look around and you know, we might see some other yogis who are really being diligent and mindful and alert and aware, and it can help us, it can inspire us. I had this situation in my early days in India, was living at the Burmese Vihara, and there was this other guy across, across the little courtyard. Uh, this was unlike the Australia time, His light would be on all night. I'd be practicing till 12 o'clock, till one o'clock at night. I'd be ready for sleep. His light would still be on. And it inspired me. So I just got up and walked again, you know, and then I sit and then, okay, I'm ready for sleep now. Look across. His light's still on. He's, he's sitting. I'm going to (laughs) sit. You know, it's kind of competitive sitting. (laughs) It was amazing. I, it just stretched me. You know, I was, I was inspired by his diligence he might have fallen asleep with his light on. You know, for, I, I, have no, I have no idea what was going on behind the door. But it served me. You know, and I think we serve each other in this way. And likewise, when we're feeling really alert, you know, and we're practicing well, and we're being attentive, it's to recognize that we are serving others, that we become the inspiration for others then. You know, and it really brings to life this whole idea that our practice is not for ourselves alone. What does profitable talk mean in a context of silence? Well, there are times when You know, just a little reading can be helpful. And this doesn't mean six hours with a book. But just, you know, just having a little hit of 15 or 20 minutes of reading the dhamma can be inspiring. You know, or listening to a tape. Also sometimes chanting. You know, there's that little chanting room in the the council house. Uh, if you're really sluggish, if you're very low energy, you've tried all these other things, uh, that can really be arousing of energy and arousing of faith and arousing of confidence. It might be helpful for you to know that sloth and torpor is not eradicated from the mind until one is in our hunt. So this is a very deeply rooted tendency. It's going to be around for a long time, which is why it's worth understanding in some detail and in a comprehensive way, okay, how do we work with it? You know, how can we engage it so it actually becomes food for our awakening rather than just sinking into it as a hindrance? Moggallana, who is the chief disciple, one of the two chief disciples of the Buddha, He became fully enlightened after one week of practice but he struggled in that week (laughs) and he was sitting in the forest and it said that his mind shrank and become withered you know and unworkable and the buddha came to know of this you know through his through his power of mind and so the buddha appeared you know spontaneously to Mogalana, and he said Moggallana, are you drowsy Moggallana replied yes sir I am nodding and Buddha said listen I will teach you ways for overcoming it and then he gave many of the things we discussed tonight and the last thing he said and if none of these work take rest Mm -hmm. and so we try all this we engage with you know all of these uh, ways of working and if still we're just really tired So we take rest. Just one little suggestion in taking rest, something i found very uh, helpful. When I'm feeling really tired, sometimes I'll lie down on retreat. I'll lie down, but just until the point, you know that moment where before you fall asleep, there's a moment... It's like everything lets go. There's that moment of relaxation to lie down until that moment and then get up rather than then go into sleep. And what I found is that that really is what was needed. It wasn't the sleep. It was just that complete relaxation of mind and body. So that could be something else to explore as well. I'd like to close with something that Ajahn Chah uh, wrote. He said, I wish that you continue your journeys and practice with much wisdom. Use the wisdom that you have already developed to persevere in practice. This can become the ground for your growth, for the deepening of yet greater understanding and love. Understand that you can deepen your practice in many ways. Don't be lazy. If you find yourself lazy, then work to strengthen those qualities which overcome it. Don't be fearful or timid. If you are timid in practice, then work with your mind so that you can overcome that. With the proper effort and with time, understanding will unfold by itself. But in all cases, use your own natural wisdom. You come to where you have no more questions, to that place of silence, to the place in which there is oneness with the Buddha, with the Dhamma, with the universe, and only you can do that. From now on, it's up to you. So let's sit for a couple of minutes,